episode 41 of the First Strength Podcast. And before we start the show, I'll give our shout-outs to our sponsor, FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles in Canada, especially in Canada. And uh, tonight, I'm joined with Brian and Vince, Dagger 4, to talk about all the exciting news that was revealed today. Uh, lots of Ixalan news, and then we're going to talk about a little bit of a standard because uh, Brian had a, an RPTQ that he played, and then he's traveling to GPDC, probably the last relevant standard tournament before Ixalan comes into play. So how's it going, guys? Good. Everything is good. So. Everything's good. I feel like I haven't been here in a long time, but I think it's only been two weeks. In, in the Magic world lately, that feels like an eternity. Everything's happening so quickly, and things are changing so fast. Very true. <laughs> um it's it's been great actually just want to give a shout out to you brian because people are and spencer howland from uh, constructive criticism people are actually listening to this show and signing up to our first strike nation because they've heard about us either on the constructive criticism podcast or the game podcast so that's really awesome to see like that's really the common answer that i'm getting every time i say hey how'd you hear about us oh from uh, from another show so that is pretty sweet um we'll start off with something uh i feel like wizards pulled the curtain let us see the insides a little about what happened when a couple i believe a couple months ago when ixlon was sort of unofficially spoiled or at least part of it and uh they released an article called behind the scenes with the alleged ixlon card theft um, where I'm just going to read a, a gist of it. We take the security of our printing facilities very seriously. However, during a shift at one of these facilities, a former tempor- uh, temporary employee of that facility allegedly took a stack of uncut sheets from Ixlon, evaded security, and left the building. A security camera recorded the alleged theft. Uh, usually, I feel like Wizard is pretty... Um, we don't know anything about what happened. It is interesting that they actually revealed exactly how the whole set became spoiled. Uh, what did you think about this open information now, Brian? I guess, like, I think they're being open because it's kind of, this is what we knew happened. Like, nobody really thought there was any other way that this could go down. It's just like when uncut sheets show up on the internet, what happened? They were taken from the factory. They, were, they didn't, like, materialize out of thin air. They're not magical uncut sheets. So um, I don't think they really told us anything there. but. Um, the, the bigger picture is just that, like, they acknowledge this happened. And a lot of times in the past, the way they've treated leaks is just to be like, la la la, we don't see you. If we don't acknowledge them, they don't exist. And it's pretty clear that that's not a winning strategy in the long term. Um, look, the internet's too, we're all too plugged in. We know too much. We all talk to each other amongst a million forms of social media and information disseminates very quickly. This disseminated very quickly. We all knew about it within hours of it showing up on Reddit. Um, although it sounds like that maybe these cards were kind of out there for a little bit longer than we first suspected on various interwebs. But um, I, I, I like their approach here. Like, it makes sense. They're, they had nothing to gain by denying this. And they acknowledged that they're going to do spoiler season different. And I think we saw cool new stuff today. So it, it seems very plausible they can still have a successful spoiler season despite kind of getting wrecked by this random thief. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like you said, usually they don't say anything and they just move on. It is interesting that they posted an article about this and, and then a lot of sweet stuff 
But I think we'll jump into what I think was the biggest news uh, of the day for a lot of players, which is the introduction of the legendary Planeswalker. Um, I'm going to read off from Ixalan Mechanics on the Mothership. Starting with this set, all Planeswalker past, present, future will have the super type legendary. They'll also be subject to the legend rule. The Planeswalker unique list rule, rule is going away. What does this mean? In short, everything that's true about legendary permanents will now be true about legendary Planeswalkers. Also note that this does not mean legendary Planeswalkers can be your commander unless ability says so. Under the new rules, if a player controls more than one legendary Planeswalker with the same name, that player chooses one and puts the other into the into their owner's graveyard. This means that if you control Jason Ravler's secrets and cast Jason Cunning Castaway, both Jaces can exist under your control. Vince, uh, any comments about like the flavor of this? Like, does this affect uh, the experience to you? I feel like that's been the number one gripe from what I've been seeing online is that people are saying, you know, this doesn't make sense from a flavor perspective. But I mean, realistically, this is a card game first and the flavor comes secondary to that. And making sure that you have a level of simplicity and cohesion in the rules to me is significantly more important than whether or not the flavor makes sense. Like we've had plenty of flavor fails that currently exist in Magic that will continue to exist like things without arms holding equipment um there's there's tons of stuff like this this isn't like a huge issue and people saying that you know it it ruins their entire experience i think are being a little bit dramatic about the whole change i personally like the change um i'm all about ways to simplify the rules i think magic's complex enough as it is and bringing a level of cohesion between the way other legendary permanents exist to the way legendary planeswalkers exist is all good to me, so I'm I'm for it, and I, I I mean I understand why people are saying you know it's it's weird to see two of the same Jace or two of the same Gideon in play at the same time, but I mean it was already kind of weird when they were on opposite sides of the battlefield. So I don't really see this as a huge flavor failure that like requires some kind of acknowledgement from Watsi. I think it's a good call. Hmm. Brian, you you care about this uh, flavor confusion possibly? KYT, you know the answer to that. Come on. <laughs> do you really have to ask me that question? You know I do not care whatsoever. Uh, card game first. I, I think like, there's arguments. You can make all kinds of arguments about the flavor. Like Vince said, there's already previously an issue that these things could exist across from each other. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know anything about how Planeswalkers actually work, but can't they, can't they like fracture themselves and exist in different planes at different times and kind of like be in more than one place at once? I don't know. That seems like something a Planeswalker should be able to do. At least Jace, I don't know. Like He should be able to have different versions of himself floating around the multiverse. That's how it works in like comic books, right? Like There's a million different Spider-Mans in all these alternate universes. It, it probably doesn't work that way in you know, Planeswalker land, otherwise people wouldn't be as outraged as they are. But uh, this is another silly thing to be upset about in a long list of silly things to be upset about. I... I haven't heard much real outrage about this. I, I'd rather talk about it from a rules perspective. Um, this encourages kind of a more Planeswalker-centric gameplay. Like, there was some punishment for having two of the same pla- named Planeswalker in your deck before. Uh, that punish- punishment's now gone. Um, that's a little disconcerting to me. I, as I've said before, I really don't like Planeswalker-focused standards or planeswalker focused gameplay in general and i think one of the reasons why this standard has been above average besides the fact that we have banned 
you know, 50 cards from it to finally get to a workable place. But also right now, the games are very much not Planeswalker focused, um, which is, is good, I think. I think we've played Planeswalker focused Magic for such a long period of time. It's good to get away from it. And that's my one like little nagging concern about this rules change is it could lead to some more Planeswalker dominated board states. Um, but obviously, let's actually see that happen before we panic and, and freak out. There's, you know, just a, just a neat change. Uh, I, I'm always troubled by errata. Um, I think that's a, a very, very big deal. Um, and now there are errata cards in modern. I guess to some extent there already were. Like there was miswritten tribal types and things like that on some old cards that, you know, aren't clear on their face. Um, but, you know, this is cards in a modern card frame that actually don't play how they read. And I think that's the first instance of that occurring in kind of this new era of magic. A little troubling, but the fact that there was already kind of a rule in place that mirrored it in some ways, and, um, you know, we're dealing with a very specific permanent type, and it's across all those permanents, I, I guess I'm cool with it. It's, it's a little closer to something like the colorless mana symbol, um, where things are just like the functionality of it is, is basically the same. I tweaked a little bit um so i don't know it's it's just another change you know changes are why we play magic if you can't recognize that i really don't know what to tell you like you love this game because it changes with the release of every set and people seem to forget that all the time and get outraged over every little change and every decision wizards makes and it's okay to be skeptical and to think about how that change affects the game or to just be like this is a problem right off the bat we'll play with it first figure it out if it's a problem I, I don't know if they explicitly mentioned in the article, Brian, but I, I think they, they're just saying they're trying to make it just more consistent with the rest of the permits, I guess, to be more noob-friendly. Yeah, I always thought it was a little unintuitive, to be honest. Like, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that that was the, the byline you checked on the card, as opposed to, like, the way every other permanent worked. But you can talk about, you know, Planeswalkers as a whole have a lot of inconsistencies that kind of exist outside the realm of normal magic to me. And maybe that just comes from my perspective of, you know, predating Planeswalkers. You know, I go back to 1994, where there's a very, very different game. And so Planeswalkers will always, in my eyes, be a little bit of an anomaly and an outlier. And I understand there's definitely like a sect of the magic population that doesn't perceive things that way. Um, but maybe that's why I'm a little bit more forgiving of their you know, willingness to tweak these cards around a little bit. Okay. Um, let's just, I'll just jump into the Jace itself that, that is revealed in this article to talk about this uh, new change. And it's Jace Cunning Castaway, double blue, one colorless, legendary planeswalker. Uh, Jace starts with three loyalty counters plus one. Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player uh, this turn, draw a card, then discard a card. Minus two, create a 2-2 blue illusion creature token with when this creature becomes a target of a spell, sacrifice it. And minus five, create two tokens that are copies of Jace Cutting Castaway, except they're not legendary. Hmm. Man, my brain hurts. Uh, Vince, help me out here. So, Planeswalkers, I mean, for, since their inception, have been very, very difficult to evaluate before seeing them played, just because there's a lot going on on the card, and it's, it's a lot of it's sort of contextual, too, on the environment that they're placed in, um, what types of cards exist around them, what the standard environment's going to be like. But 
I think we've kind of seen enough Planeswalkers now that we can kind of get a general idea of what Planeswalkers will probably be good. And they usually have one of two things going on when you know a Planeswalker is going to be pretty powerful. And the first thing I look for is a Planeswalker where all of the abilities, I mean, not, not really including the ultimate unless it's easy to do, where the abilities kind of link up with each other well. So the card kind of has built-in synergy. Um, cards like the four mana Gideon is an example of that, where you're making tokens and then growing them. Like that's that's a built-in synergy. Nissa's like that as well. Um, those planeswalkers tend to be pretty good. And then the other types of planeswalkers that tend to be pretty powerful are ones that have broad effects. So things that do that impact the board in a lot of different circumstances. Um, obviously, Jace the Mind Sculptor is a good example of that. It's always going to be relevant. Even Jace Bellerin just drawing cards is always going to be good. Um, or the four mana Chandra is another example of that killing things, drawing cards, all good stuff. Um, the planeswalkers that tend to be a little bit on the like maybe good, maybe bad side are like this Jace, where a lot of context is required for the card to be good. Like obviously, the plus is a reasonably powerful ability. However, it requires you to a have creatures in play and b kind of still have a way to protect your Jace after you attack, unless you just don't care about your Jace living. And that's kind of a tall order for a planeswalker to be asking for at three mana. Um, the minus is obviously decent. You're getting a 2-2 from a 3-drop from a Planeswalker, but it's basically costing you the entire card, right? You're putting Jace at 1 loyalty, and, and the token you make is even pretty fragile. So it's not a great minus either. Um, so with that being said, unless there's a deck that really, really suits this card well... Because the other thing is, I don't think this card is powerful enough to justify trying to build a deck around it to make it work. Some Planeswalkers kind of have that effect, but I don't think this Jace will do that. Um, so there needs to be enough good, kind of like cheap, efficient attackers for you to really justify wanting this Jace in a, in a deck. Um, I don't see that happening, so I don't think it's great. I will say that I kind of talked about this last set with Samet. Samet was also pretty bad, but Samet was pretty cool with doubling season. This Planeswalker is way cooler with doubling season. Because if you cast it after doubling season, it comes in with six loyalty. Um, when you ultimate, because you get to ultimate right away, you get more Jaces that come in with six loyalty and can continue to ultimate over and over and over again until you have infinite Jaces and then a whole bunch of tokens that you make with the Jace minus, which also get doubled from doubling season. So that's an exciting little combo for those of you who like the the modern doubling season Planeswalker decks. I'd like to see some neat brews on that. But for standard, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical on how on uh, its impact. I don't know it's, if it's going to see much play. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Shout-outs to Ben in, in, in the chat who uh, makes us want to imagine how, how this card would, would do in, in the heyday of Mono Blue Devotion uh, with this and Thassa and, and other stuff and all the... A raptors and and that would early raptors that would be able to help you draw cards really early yeah could be sweet uh brian what do you think about this card in, in current uh application in current formats it has no applications in the current format whatsoever it's there's just nothing there like w- give me an example of a deck that this slots into um based on i mean you can look at the new cards as well based on what what it, we know to exist where does this card fit and my answer is nowhere. I, j- I just don't see it right now. It's just not the way standard is being played. Now, talk about something like the context of Mono Blue Devotion. Okay, I'm getting into this card. Because let's keep in mind, though, Mono Blue Devotion is a super unique deck in the history of Magic. Um, first of all, the power level of cards varied dramatically. Um, you were kind of like 
hyper incentivized to curves out, curve that curve out. And then your ones were awesome on turn one. And then from every point, <laughs> the rest of the game, they were complete garbage. So think about eluding effect in a deck like that. Like that's a huge, huge deal for that type of deck. Obviously, we have a, a card that, you know, generates some board presence, has a looting effect. All of those effects go really well into Mono Blue Devotion. But not only right now, but in the history of Magic, there's very few decks that actually play that way. And I think it's, you know, I, I don't want to harp on this, but one of the things we do when we look at cards is we shortcut them. And I kind of like shortcutted this ability when I first looked at it as Tamiyo. But keep in mind, you can never get more than one loot per turn. And that's a very big difference. Like, you're, you're just topped out at one loot per turn, and, and that's it, unless you have multiple Jaces in play. Um, so it's, it's not like you're going to spiral out of control very quickly and start filtering through your entire deck. Um, and that's obvious on the face of the card. I know that. But just my quick reading the first time, I didn't see that part, so I wanted to point it out. Um, I think that... So the doubling season deck is kind of silly. This is a, as close as it has ever been to being reasonable. You can see kind of like a split combo mono blue deck starting to take shape. Um, you know, something like Master of Waves, which benefits from both doubling season and Jace. Um, do I actually believe this is good enough for modern? Not right now, no. But... You know, Modern is an ever-evolving card pool, and you can kind of see how these two cards could start sliding together. I, I don't know what the green-blue green quasi-combo deck... I mean, my favorite decks pretty much in the history of Magic are like these weird aggro combo decks where they have a very good aggressive plan, and then they can just kill you out of nowhere with a combo. Things like, um, you know, the first place I did it was in one of the first ever Splinter Twin builds. If people remember, like, Old Extended, I built what I called at the time Pester Twin. And it was just basically like a, a very good aggro deck with Bloodbraid Elf and Noble Hierarch. And it could just cascade into like a Pestermite untap and kill you. Like it, it had a very good aggro game plan, but also just had an I-win combo. And that's kind of the role that this card could take in modern. Um, but I'm really playing devil's advocate here. I don't see a home for Jace right now. The one application that I would mention is that I always look for three mana... Um, planeswalkers for the pure control mirror something you can just do on turn three now that was more relevant when we were kind of locked into just having turn three counter spells if i think back to like ashiok in the blue black decks of that era ashiok was a very good mirror breaker you just played it on three and there really weren't many three mana or two mana counter spells so if you were on the play you almost certainly resolved it um so i, I like thinking of jace in that context but even saying that, I mean, you, I just don't think you get enough from him. Like, I, I, I don't quite see it. Um, you know, you think about the play pattern, it's like, in that situation, it's minus, you make a 2-2. Two -two. Next turn, you plus, you get a loot, you do two, dam two damage on turn four. Now we're on turn five, we can have another 2-2 two -two if we want to cash in our Jace, but we really don't want to do that, so we get another loot. On turn six, we get another 2-2. Two -two. Like, does any of this really sound that appealing for breaking open a control mirror? Not really, and you can play, play that to something like Ashiok, which could just break the game open very quickly. Um, I want to just do a hard pass on this card for the time being. I'm going to have to see something else before I start playing Jace. Um, let's, let's, so, so you both agree, let's roll back a bit about the uh, Planeswalker rule as a whole, besides the doubling season deck. Uh, Brian, do you see like this making much of an impact in, in modern? People are excited about, oh, maybe we'll bring back super friends in modern, but as we've seen, 
But some of the top decks in the metagame, just certain sorceries or creatures, are just so powerful that there's no like really Planeswalker deck that relies on this incremental advantage to, to take over the game. Do you see some sort of like super friends type thing emerging? Like, do you see a huge impact on the modern metagame? No, I think, I think you did a very good job of describing it, is that Planeswalkers are kind of like inc- incremental value across many turns, and that's not the way modern is played. Modern is played across a very small number of key turns um, with very, you know, complicated decisions, but the game's kind of wrapped up at that one point, and the incremental value of Planeswalkers doesn't really apply. You know, the, the type of Planeswalkers that see play are like Liliana. Um, you know, we see... Um, a little bit of Gideon now. Like, Gideon gets a little bit of an upgrade because Gideon of the Trials and bigger Gideon can be on the battlefield at the same time. That's really good for the blue-white deck. Um, is it completely game-changing? No, it takes an already fine deck and pumps it up a little bit. Um, but uh, you're going to see some multiple Ilianas on the battlefield. You know, Death Shadow can play both now a little bit more comfortably. It's a deck that really likes having access to both. Um, so it's more likely they do that in the main deck. Um, but yeah, I, such a, you're you're not going to play four of each Liana, right? It's usually like one's optimal, but it's so good that a fifth copy is like. I mean, obviously they're very different cards, but you know, there's only so many three double black one planeswalkers you can have in your deck before you reach a point where it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, so I think this is a pretty small tweak to modern. It certainly doesn't fundamentally shift anything. This is not what modern's about. Um, you know, someone's going to do something silly and build like a six Jace deck, and it's it's going to be very goofy, but it's not going to be good probably. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on to something about Ixalan. I don't remember um, Vince if we had you on when we maybe mentioned Ixalan, but I would like your opinion because I I don't know why I consider you the flavor guy in my head of, of the first strike crew, maybe because you were so passionate about the. Egyptian borders of the masterpieces and you and Rob, maybe that's why I have this like image uh, in my head. The reason, the reason why is because I'm the only non-competitive player on the podcast. So I'm, I'm relegated to being the flavor expert. I'm totally down with it. I don't mind at all, but yeah. uh, What do you want to ask me? I completely didn't realize that. And that just like made me laugh. Um, The fact that uh, the whole idea that this set was going to be a dinosaurs, like pirates, Merfolk, well, Merfolk vampires we've had, but the whole dinosaurs pirates thing. Were you? Uh, hey, maybe, maybe. Well, what were your initial reaction? I was totally on board when I heard dinosaurs and pirates. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be sweet. But then, like you said, they like they made it way more complicated than they needed needed it to be. They added so much more that they shouldn't have. Like, if if you're trying to make a set stand out from a flavor perspective, you can just look in history at what's worked. And understand that it's all about simplicity, right? Ravnica is a great set from a flavor perspective. Focus on guilds. That's all they did. There's 10 guilds. Neat. Let's worry about that for the flavor perspective. Innistrad, horror, one idea, done. Focus on that. Uh, Scars of Mirrodin, you have Phyrexians, Mirrodin people, done. Don't add merfolk, uh, vampires, weird other themes, like explore, like just make it pirates versus dinosaurs and then figure out the details like you want to start very simple top down if you're going to work from uh if you're trying to have a set that really stands out from a flavor perspective so i was really on board at first love the idea of dinosaurs love the idea of pirates and then they kind of just were like well let's just add a bunch of random tribes that have zero relevance to 
pirates and dinosaurs because we don't know how to make white pirates and like, I don't know, it just felt lazy to me. So I'm I'm like kind of heartbroken, but I'll live with it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it does mark Ixlon does mark the return of the very early return of uh, double face cards. I feel like we've we've seen them like you know, Abyssin, it's not it's not been that long to say it marks the return, but uh I think it, it's got this as opposed to maybe like bricks, which I've completely forgotten already. I don't know if bricks were ever relevant in, in constructed, um or it didn't feel that flavorful anyways. But now we got like treasure map, two uh two colorless artifact uh with an ability where you tap one colors and tap it, scribe one, put a landmark counter on treasure map. Then if there are three or more landmark counters on it, remove those counters, transform treasure map, and create three colorless treasure artifact tokens with tap, sacrifice this artifact at one mana of any color to your mana pool. And then when you flip treasure map, it becomes treasure cove, which is a land uh, that adds colorless mana, or you tap it to sacrifice a creature, uh, a, a treasure to draw a card. Um, I like the design. I like the look. I don't know. Like some people don't like the look. I really like the look of that card. It gives me this pirate feeling. And then I'm hoping they do more with this treasure theme than the bricks theme. Um, what are your thoughts of Vince? So before I get into it, I want to say one thing that like really it's so minor, but it makes me so angry is that they had gold as a token that did the exact same thing, right? It was a colorless artifact. You could crack it for rainbow mana. And they used it, like, twice. On, I think maybe, yeah, twice, on a card called Guild. And then I think there's, a, a, like, a, a guy called King Makar that did something with gold. And then they just make the exact same token and call it something else. Like, I don't, I don't understand why either they didn't call it treasure before or call it stuff gold. Like, is it really going to bother people that it's, it's called treasure instead of gold? I don't know. That kind of bothered me just because it adds complexity again for no reason but yeah this card's sweet i i, I like i i don't have an issue with double face cards a lot of people say they ruin drafting in real life i think that's complete nonsense um this is a i also think this card's pretty powerful i don't know um where it's gonna slot in in terms of constructed um i'm gonna love it and limit it i think it's a great limited card um but yeah i i do like the way it looks i like the idea um I just hope they, like you said, do a much better job of manifesting this idea of treasure and instead of just making it some niche irrelevant ability like bricks where it was just like counters are bricks. Let's call them bricks. Like, let's actually have a little bit more interaction. And it's pretty obvious based on even what we've seen so far that it's, it's going to be more fleshed out than bricks, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm good with double face cards. I hope there's more of them. Uh, it's a neat idea for sure. Uh, what do you think about the art? Like, you, you like the art of Treasure Cove? Did I miss it? Yeah, no, I think the art's great. I like the nice thing about this art, and it's like such a one eighty from the last time they did weird art. Is it's very crisp. Like you can see the text, you know what's going on. It's not too busy, but it's still unique enough that you look and you go, "Oh wow, that's a new card." Like that's not a normal Magic card. And I think that's really important for their future development of different card faces is clarity over everything and then focus on design elements that are neat. Like don't sacrifice the readability of a card because you want it to look cool. Like that's just a really stupid way to design a card. So I'm, I'm on board with this new way of them 
designing new card faces. Mm -hmm. You all on board with uh, this double-faced idea, Brian, as well? Just feels like we're returning to this a little quickly. Like we just did double-faced cards. I feel like there's probably a different mechanic we could have gone to. Um, it's not like I have any strong hatred for double-faced cards. I, I use sleeves that are always opaque. If I didn't, maybe it would kind of... I remember I used to use a brand of sleeves that like, they, would shine, they would shine through on. And I, I totally hated having used the checklist cards. Uh, now I've just switched to always using these, the sleeves that I know will be opaque. So I care a little bit less. But it's, it's weird. It's weird. I don't know why we're, we're back to that. Um, I want to point out that someone in our chat, uh, Parth, mentioned that they didn't want it to let people double dip for mana with improvise. And I think that's a really interesting distinction point because gold tokens didn't have to tap to be sacrificed. Um, so Ooh, yeah, that is I, a very good point. Yeah, that's a really good catch, and I can totally see that being the reason why this change was made. Um, I don't, I don't know if it, I mean, I, I'm assuming they got into play testing. It was like kind of late. Someone found something that completely shattered these cards in half as far as improvise went, and uh, they had to do kind of a quick fix and, and get away from the gold tokens because I have a feeling they probably started there and ended up here. Um, so. There's that point. Um, as far as the look, I don't like the look of this card, but I loved the Amonkhet Invocations, and I recognize there's space for cards to be ugly sometimes. To me, this card is ugly. It doesn't look like a magic card, but I don't hate cards that necessarily fall under those parameters. I think like the, the Invocations were ugly, didn't look like magic cards, and I like them. Um, this is a little bit problematic in that it's much more common than something like an Invocation. Um, so a little weird, but you know, again, I, I tend not to get tweaked about these things anymore. I don't know. Does that make me a crappy podcast host that I'm not just out of my mind enraged by these type of things? Like, just, outrage 24 yeah, seven, bro. It's, I can't have this much outrage in my life. Like you guys saw back when we were playing the worst standard in modern memory, I have plenty of outrage in my heart. Like when outrage is justified, I will fire it up and I will rant like a madman. But stuff like this, just like little aesthetic stuff, we're still playing Magic. It's an interesting way of playing Magic. Um, but it, it is strange to me coming back to double face cards and vehicles, too. Um, we have vehicles in this set. And it's like, dude, we just left vehicles. Like, how are we already back here? Um, and maybe this is a side effect of how long we've been in kind of this standard format that it just feels like... Like, a card like Gideon feels like it's been a part of my life for such a long time now. <laughs> like, I've almost known it as long as I've known my wife. So it's like... Dude, <laughs> I don't know if that's like the fatigue that's wearing in on some of these ideas, but uh, yeah, weird stuff. And and what Vince was saying too about like this everything feeling very jammed together. I get that. There's a lot going on in this set: pirates and dinosaurs and vehicles and double face cards. Oh my, all over the place. And it's like a little overwhelming right now. You know, maybe it's the way that things have been spoiled, uh, kind of on Moss. If we just had. Here's our dinosaurs. Here's our pirates. Here's our whatever. It would have been a little bit easier to palette as opposed to everything just getting dumped on us at once. Um, but I will say that I find the like vibe of the art very cool. Like it's very like tropical and like I, I want to use the word feathery. Like it's just very um, it's cool looking. It looks a little different from a magic set, which is good. The one thing that keeps coming to my mind. This is going to matter to almost no one. I 
feel like the I'm gonna mispronounce their name, the Fagolios, uh, Kaja and Phil Fagolio. They were like original magic artists, and they did a very cartoonish style. Um, I'm trying to think of cards that they did, like re- very famous cards, stuff like I think Orcish Librarian is one of theirs. Just do a quick Google, you'll you'll see the type of stuff they did. It feels like they belong here so much. I don't even know if they're still alive. They haven't done magic art for ages now. Um, but it, I, I look at these cards and I'm immediately reminded of them. And, and I wish they had a piece in this set because they actually were my favorite artists back in the day when I first started playing magic. So. All right. All right. I kind of, I love the, the whole, <laughs> didn't we just uh, play with vehicles before? I kind of, I'm not really big in flavor. I'm not one to have ever even like a lot of people I know have read some of the books. I've never even touched them. I don't even know the storyline. I just play the game and play the game for the first time ever. I actually see a feel like there's a lot of potential for me to uh, not be able to avoid the strong flavor. If like all the vehicles are like pirate ships and stuff like that. And then there's all these treasures. And then there's like, you know, important creatures that, that have this like pirate flavored mechanic. Uh, I've, I've never really felt that way in the past or just like, eh, it's just cre- a creature or whatever. But this is the first time where I, I feel like I can't avoid uh, the flavor if they do it right. Um, what's cool is like today, another article, there's like there's so many articles like State of Design 2017 by Mark Rosewater going over the different uh, pros and cons, like the the things they did well, the things they did, didn't do well with Kaladesh and Amonkhet and an Amonkhet they talked about how, you know, people liked players like Cycling, Exert, and Bomb, Aftermath, and the Gods, and some of the lessons where there was too much going on. Like, like Vince talked about uh, what he would like to see would be something simple. Uh, Mark goes on to talk about how Amonkin Block was a top-down Egyptian-inspired set with six keywords, Afflict, Aftermath, Cycling, and Bomb, Eternalize, and Exert, and a whole host of themes, Gods, Deserts. Monuments, mummies, trials, and others. It's not that any one mechanic or theme was a problem. There were simply too many, especially for Hour of Devastation, which tried to cram in most of Amicant's mechanics and themes along with a host of new ones. Uh, There's one thing in this article I wanted your take, Brian. Uh, Mark says that energy, this was the most popular mechanic of the block. It played well and was very flavorful. Of all the mechanics of this last year, it's the one I'm most asked about when it's returning. Do you actually want to see energy return at some point in the future? No, I want it to be retroactively removed from this timeline, actually. It's one of the things I hate the most that I've done over the past few years. Not because it's, it's interesting, it's a fine implementation of the idea. I don't feel like it's necessary to move magic forward. Um, I think it creates a point of complication that now exists throughout the entirety of Magic's history. Be that, you know, 10 more years or 50 more years, you'll always have to have your stupid little energy card with your stupid energy counters to put on them. Because it's possible that if you're playing, you know, an eternal format, someone could have energy cards. Um, Obviously, that's not a huge issue, but you get the point. Um, I think when you expand, and, and this is something, you have to go back almost like 35 episodes to get to my point on this, but I spoke about the language of magic and how I feel that the best mechanics use the language of alpha beta unlimited and just expand from there. And, you know, in my view, Richard Garfield didn't only create a game, he created a language and everything about magic needs to spawn from that language or you create communication barriers depending on when you stopped learning the language. Um, And energy very much 
breaks that language. It, it requires a, a different um, set of vocabulary, and it's one that I would not have added to the game myself if I was in charge. Um, but like I said, I, I do think the implementation is fine. I think that energy has uh, brought some interesting decisions to the fold, and, and that's all good, and I, I respect that, and I appreciate that. But it's just like, I feel like we could have gotten to these interesting points through some other method without expanding the language of the game. And that's always been my beef with energy. So strong disagree with Mark there. Um, but I think he's, I don't think he's giving an opinion. I think he's speaking to the data. So if that's what the data says, that's what the data says. And, you know, I think that I have to kind of accept that I may not want, I, I mean, I know I don't want the same things as the majority of the player base because the majority of the player base is not people who compete on the pro tour and you know that's their drive for playing the game it's a the player base is driven by people who play for fun i am demented and have no concept of doing anything for fun so i just can't relate to that so i understand that it's something completely different and i'm happy to be the outlier here no i think i think vince is probably on the same team are you vince i am for kind of different reasons though like I think my big beef with energy is that it's such an insular mechanic. You're only ever going to play an energy deck or play with energy cards with other cards that also care about energy. They're not good enough, at least so far. They haven't really been good enough on their own to justify playing them in any other context. And if they were, it would be even kind of weirder, like Brian was saying. It's just adding another level of complexity. It's even worse. I, th- I think the other side is even worse. You think, like, think about a card like Glimmer of Genius in the approach. Yeah. <laughs> it only has Glimmer of Genius. So it's like, do you track this stupid energy that's completely irrelevant? Right. And then, like, you know, you don't in 99% of the games, and then somehow <laughs> something weird happens and it becomes super important. I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess you're supposed to track it. Yeah. And uh, I-, I think that's worse than it being insular, is that when it's not important, it creates its, its own set of yeah, yeah. uselessness. So. so I guess it's actually just worse than examples I was going to use because I was going to talk about like how Affinity was another kind of mistake like that where you never really get to enjoy the mechanic with the library of magic cards that exist, whereas other mechanics allow you to do that. Like Even Exert interacts with other magic cards better than Energy does just because it's a simple mechanic Therefore, it will interact, like Brian is saying, with more of the language of magic that exists, whereas this is a completely insulated idea that sometimes also is just annoying because it leaves behind these small things that no one actually cares about when they're not relevant. But yeah, the the idea that they want to return back to energy is actually really scary to me because it implies that they like it enough that they want to have it almost become evergreen. And that's just adding a level of complexity like we were talking about earlier that is completely unnecessary the game functions very well and is already incredibly complex without adding some other random source of resource like it just doesn't need to be there There there's so many more efficient and interactive ways to print cards like this that don't have a cool new symbol on them to catch someone's eye so i'm i'm not for energy coming back i wasn't even i think the mechanic was doomed to begin with like there was no way to implement this correctly and I understand why people like it because it feels like it's new and exciting. Realistically, it's not new and exciting. You're just putting a picture on something that could have existed in many other different ways. Um, so yeah, I, I sincerely hope energy does not come back. You you made a really good argument too. I don't. I mean, it, it may have been an unconscious argument, but the the biggest thing about this kind of theory I have about magic about the language theory is that when you 
stray from the language, you mess up all those points of interaction. It's like our system of language. We have our, our verbs and our adjectives and our prepositions, and we know how they all link together and form to, you know, form a flowing piece of communication. But if you inserted a new, a new thing into that language as like kind of a, you know, a wedge, a hammer that just kind of splits the language apart and doesn't flow with all the rules that already exist, it's impossible for other pieces of the language to successfully interact with this new, um, you know, item. So I, you're exactly right that it's extremely difficult for anything to touch energy because it doesn't use the language of magic. Anything that uses the language of magic, you know, when, when you exert something, you tap it. Well, there's all kinds of untapped tap effects that you can use all over the place. So it, it just, it, it's very difficult for this to be a successful mechanic. I think as an insular mechanic, it was good. As a broader magic mechanic, it can't possibly succeed. And that's the problem with it. Yeah, the, like just to add to that real briefly, the, the, the scary part and what I was kind of alluding to is the only way to actually fix that is to integrate it very aggressively. Like 20% of all new cards have energy on them. And that would just suck. So I really hope they just say, okay, energy was cool. That was fun. Let's never do it again. Because the only other option that actually works well with from a gameplay perspective is very aggressively integrating energy into future sets and i really don't want them to do that for reasons we said earlier so yeah hopefully energy is gone for good man i didn't expect this uh topic to be so awesome actually <laughs> so thanks guys uh, <laughs> another excellent we talked about jace um let's talk about a car that our friend of the show a good friend of mine, Shaheen Suhrani, is really excited about, and it's, of course, Vraska Contempt. Two black, two colorless, instant, exile target creature or planeswalker. You gain two life. Um, does a lot, and uh, basically it's, it's one of those, it feels like another version of Hero's Downfall, but now you exile and you gain life with the uh, addition of one extra colorless mana. I think I'm excited about this because I think I play some decks where it's hard to get rid of gods, and this allows me to do that. Uh, Vince, are you pretty excited about playing with this card? You- I, I mean, just to talk about Shaheen, I feel like from the little I know about Shaheen, if there was a card that he would be excited about from the set so far, I feel like this would be the one, right? It kind of has Shaheen written all over it. Um, yeah, I actually think this card's really good. I think... Um, it's kind of subtle how good it is because it's very flexible, right? It's it's doing a lot more than it looks like um, in that, like you said, it's very good against gods. Um, instant speed kind of matters right now as well. The mana cost obviously is a little bit awkward in that four is kind of steep, but the things you're dealing with are, you're, you're probably netting mana in terms of the things that you want to be interacting with. Uh, I think the gain to life kind of matters too. Like, gaining two life isn't great, but it's also free, essentially. I mean, like, you're not really paying for it when you're getting a four-mana flexible removal spell like this. Um, Another big uh, bonus for this card is that we finally have... I mean, I guess we had Hour of Glory, but this interacts really well with Gearhulk, right? Torrential Gearhulk has a good target now for solid removal. And buying back, like, having a deck that can potentially play Glimmer in this... um, Gives you a lot of range against, you know, a bunch of different types of decks. So potentially there's a blue-black control deck that might function, you know, with like Scarab Gods and this and uh, Torrential Gearhulks. I don't know because I don't play enough standard to be able to really say for sure. But this 
to me feels better than all of the other options that have existed that kind of do a similar effect, whether it's Never to Return or um, Hour of Glory, because those are both kind of missing points on each end. Never to Return being a sorcery and not exiling until you have seven mana is a problem. Hour of Glory not interacting with Planeswalkers is kind of awkward. This is kind of doing both. Um, and then you're also gaining two life, and it's an instant. So I think I think it's good. I think it's going to see a reasonable amount of play if there is some type of black-based control deck. I don't know if that's going to happen, but the card seems sweet. I'm excited for it. Hmm. I missed that uh, synergy with Tarantula Gil- Gilhog. I didn't see it right away. Uh, Brian, are you, are you less sure about this card? I'm sure that it will see play. Um, it will just be in very light numbers, um, probably as a one-of in a blue-black control deck, which does already exist, by the way. There is a Scarab God, like Kalidus, uh, some okay, of cool. Champion of Wits, um, and it's, it's getting more popular. I haven't actually played with it yet. It's on my like, to-do list before this weekend, though, to definitely check out. I think it has some fundamental problems, some of which are answered by this card. Um, but I will now propose a little exercise. And that's that we sit here and list all of the four mana one-for-one removal that's been played in the history of Magic. Just straight one-for-one removal. Oh, what's that, guys? I'm not, I'm not hearing anyone chiming in. This exactly. is a... This is a, this exactly. is a cast out is the answer, by the way. There is cast out. But as excited as we were about that card, which also cycles, by the way, it sees very little play right now. It, it does see play, um, but four mana, one-for-one removal is not good. Now, can it fulfill a very important role? Yes, and this card is going to do that in very small numbers. But the way people are talking about it, it's like this is an auto-include four of. No, it's very far from that. Four mana, one-for-one removal is not good. Say it with me a million times. Keep saying it. But understand this is a tool you have available to you, and it it will absolutely see some play, correctly so, um, because of a very specific set of problems that we're presented with in standard right now, those being gods and, you know, some very powerful planeswalkers. It's nice to have a clean answer to them, but you can't load your deck with four mana one for one removal. You will not last. It's just not going to work out for you. Um, and one of the things that kind of blue black control, control decks have to pride themselves on is their mana efficiency. Like it's a very important thing getting to a point where you can play two spells in a turn, have a counter spell and a removal spell. That's, that's the breaking point for a deck like blue black control. And this is problematic in that regard. So, yes, it will see play, but be careful with your inclusion of this card. You, you cannot jam four of this card into a deck. It's not going to work out. The format would have to look very, very, very weird. And even in our kind of polarized format that we have now, this isn't going to be an automatic inclusion. Now I have to spend the rest of the show trying to think of four mana removal spells that have been played, and I'm sure there won't be any. That's actually a pretty good point, so... I respect that. I think I think you're probably right about it being more of like a a surgical tool rather than like a broad because like you said, yeah, format is definitely a lot. But now I'll be distracted for the next fifteen minutes trying to come up with some format or rules spells. So this is fun. Good stuff. <laughs> Parf has come out with uh, Outer N and that definitely was not a four of Good answer, but again, it's a very little play. You know, it, it performed a very specific role, and it, it's just hard for four mana. I mean, Gutter End was a very nice-looking card on its face, but it's very difficult to include four mana removal in your deck. I think that's a very good point. <laughs> Say it with me, guys. <laughs> uh, but 
That's why I think maybe it's best home is the uh, blue black uh, champion wood stack where you can like cycle it all, uh, well, m- sort of mill it or discard it into your graveyard, and then you have torrential for maximum impact, and you don't have too many copies that will clog your deck. So excited to see how that plays there. Um, because of uh, all the spoilers, all the the leak that came out uh, definitely affected all the preview cards at the different podcasts and. Uh, content sites we're getting um, the original preview card that we were going to get so we're going to talk about this uh, and Vince and Brian just like quickly chatted about it before, right before the show is actually the 3-3 for one green uh, that was sent to me Old Growth Dryads uh, it's a 3-3 Dryad when Old Growth Dryads enter the battlefield each opponent may search his or her library for a basic land card put it into play tapped and shuffle his or her library. That just seems like giving my opponent way too much. I, I just not a fan. Brian? I can't believe I was going to have to pretend that this card like had some application if this was our preview card. <laughs> like, I probably wouldn't have been successful at it. Let, let me just slow you down. If there are people proposing that this card might be playable, I want you to think about what you're giving your opponent by playing this card. For the, getting a 3-3 three, three for one, which is Good rate, sure. I, I think that's, you know, better than most of what we see in Standard by a little bit. You know, you, get, you can get a 2-1 for one. You can get Toolcraft Exemplar 3-2, possibly First Strike for one. So these cards are out there. But to play this guy, you give your opponent a card which reads zero mana, draw a card, search your library for a land and put it into play. Right? That's the best card ever printed, <laughs> like pretty much bar none. Like that's preposterously good, uh, and, and that is what you hand your opponent by playing this card. Oh, also, it's an instant too because see, they get to do it on your turn. Not that, that matters too much when the card costs zero, but you know, still think about just think about how this is working out. This is not a playable card. Please stop, everyone. Stop. I'm very happy that this did not come to us as a, a preview card because I would have had to <laughs> pretend to be optimistic about it. This is a trap, and some people will play it as a trap and will be punished for it. Um, this is like, this is the perfect noob trap card. It really is. Like someone who's just getting into competitive magic, this will look good on its face. But the cost of what you're giving your opponent here is actually tremendous, and this card should not be in any of your decks. Oh, Vince, well, what do you think? Like, is this even, I mean, I can't even think of this being limited playable. Like, giving my. My my opponent a way to just like ramp up faster it just doesn't seem right. No, it's not. I don't. I mean, it's like a limited D minus. Like there will be times where you probably have to play it because you didn't get enough playables, but it's not great at all. Um, I think Brian made it very very clear that the downside to this card, like the cost of playing it, is obviously makes it almost impossible to cast. So the way you have to think about playing this card if you want to is cheating the creature into play without the come into play happening. That's the only way you're going to justify it. And there's, what, Torpor Orb? And then there's this new card in the set. I think it's called Tokatli Honor Guard. And it's 2 minute 1-3, one, 1 and a white. Creatures entering, entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. So, theoretically, I'm just, for those of you who see this card and they're like, I need to play it because for some reason it gets me, it gets me going a 1-mana 3-3. Three, three. Um, you can play some kind of deck that has, like, Four of this 3-3, three, three, four Exemplar of Strength, four Defiant Great Maw, all of these minus one, uh, four of the, the mana-producing one that I can't remember the name of, the 3-4 for two. 
just a whole bunch of these weird, dirtily creatures, and then Tokatli Honor Guard, and maybe like uncage the menagerie to go find it, and like mm, traverses or something. And you're playing like some kind of weird beatdown deck. It almost feels like the Hardened Scales deck, but way worse in that your creatures, you require this very specific one thing in order for all of your things to actually work. But if you have it, your curve outs are actually insane. Um, so yeah, if you if you find your torpor orb, you can start playing two mana four fours, two mana three fours, and one mana three threes with no downside. Cool. There's your deck. Good luck. I mean, it's probably not very good, but at least you found a way to play this card that's virtually unplayable in every other context. So that would be the only thing I would suggest for this card. Oh, you, you just reminded me like of these like casual cards in the past, like Hunt a Wumpus, man. Six six Wumpus. Wumpus. <laughs> it's a classic. Yeah, that card was sweet. So, the Wumpus was a good sideboard tech in old Magic, though. Like you played against the Creature List deck and you boarded in your Hunted Wumpus, um, and then like just because we were so unadvanced at the time, like then you would sideboard in your anti-Hunted Wumpus creature package to like get them when they played their Hunted Wumpus. Um, it was a very different time. Let's not lapse back to that. Um, stay away from this card. It was like, uh, for, for our listeners or viewers who don't know what it was, it was a 6-6. Six, six. One green, three colorless. When Hunted Wumpus comes into play, each other player may put a creature card from his or her hand into play. Um, like these guys said, uh, I just can't see this 3-3. Three, three. Ah. And I, it's like, what? And it's like each other opponent. It's it's probably, like Vince said, it's, it was probably made for uh, just these Torpor Orb, this type of combo. I can't imagine... Unless there's a few, I don't play commander enough to know if there's like a few. Everybody happy, feel good. Everyone else is getting a land yeah, out of this group hug deck. Group hugs, they're called. Kyt. That's how I always play commander. Is I always play a group hug deck. So when I play commander, I want to make sure the rest of my table is having a good time and can do whatever they want because that's what commander is all about. Kyt. It's just everyone getting together, having a good time, playing magic, and that's how I always play commander. So this is going right in my uh, Feldegriff deck, which is, by the way, the correct commander for a group hug deck. In case anyone wanted the the authority on what the correct group hug deck is, I'm sure we have like new viewers who are here for the first time. <laughs> like, <laughs> Genuinely believe sure what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, they they actually think I'm 100 percent serious right now. I hope so. I, I sincerely hope so. Yeah, but yeah, that, that's the only purpose I can see for this card. So it plays nicely with land tax and balance. If you guys like those cards, sort of. So there's that too. Do you have Hunted Wumpus in, in this group hug deck? Sure. Why not? <laughs> that seems like a reasonable inclusion. Oh, you put whatever you want in commander decks. So if, if, I love you know, how I you're genuinely to... asking him questions about this group <laughs> hug deck. That's fantastic. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, well, we're just going to move on away from Ixalan. So if you guys have questions about uh, you guys watching or listening. Wait, we have to talk about the best card spoiled so far. We didn't even mention it. Real quick. Real quick. Uh, I have to find its name. Hold on. Give me one second. Ruin Raider is the best card spoiled so far. And I haven't really heard anyone talking about it. Ruin Raider is a two colorless, one black. Raid at the beginning of your end step. If you attacked with a creature this turn, reveal the top card of your library, put that card in your hand, you lose life equal to the card's converted mana cost. This card would be insane in any kind of like black-red aggro deck. I would play this card in Mardu Vehicles in a second. It seems way better than something like Chandra or Thalia in a bunch of metagames. Um, you know, obviously that, that three mana spot is a super contextual spot. 
So there will be spots where Chandra or Athalia would make more sense. But you very easily see this card slotting in and making a huge impact. Um, uh, I don't know. As, as far as just solid, good rate, easily includable cards, this is the one that catches my eye more than anything else. There's some other weird build-arounds, but um, this is the, the power-level card that I've seen so far. So I wanted to mention it real quick. Man, it actually has a lot of synergy. Like you can just attack with an inspector, right, Brian? Yeah, inspector, scrap heap scrounger. It, it crews your heart of Kieran on the spot, so you go turn two heart of Kieran, turn three this guy, crew up, attack with heart of Kieran, draw a card. Um, you know, it, it it flows very nicely with a lot of the cards in Marty vehicles, and it's just a good, powerful card. Very easy to get the trigger. You're in a, in some ways, it's kind of like well. I'm saying these words. This isn't actually what I mean. It's better than Bob. It's obviously not better than Bob. But the fact that you're, you're getting a draw right away, as opposed to with Bob, you have to survive. It has to survive your opponent's turn. If my opponent taps out on turn two and I play this guy on turn three, I'm getting the card to replace it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm into this card. This card seems very, very good just on pure power level. Uh, definitely the most exciting card for me that I've seen so far. I think... People are sleeping on this card for two reasons, Brian. I think the first one is that they have functionally tried to reprint a new Bob every set, and they've all been so bad that I'm just like, oh, this is the next bad Bob. Ignore it. The other thing is that it costs three. But like you said, the fact that you get to draw the card the turn you play it essentially makes it as efficient as the two-drop versions in terms of how quickly they're going to be drawing cards. So I think you're spot on in saying that it's going to be a sleeper and that a lot of people are just going to brush this card off immediately just because of how many times they've attempted to reprint it and the fact that it costs three. But yeah, I, I, think, I think this card could, could see a lot of play. You know, three, three mana, three twos with upside are kind of like they've defined standard for a very long period of time right now. Tireless Tracker, uh, Rover Fighter, Matter Reshaper is another nice one. Yeah, it, it's at a very sweet spot right now. Um, but this one, like... I don't want to say it's better than all of those because I, I think I would probably give Tireless Tracker the number one, but I could see this being the number two of those like three two value creatures. This is this is a really nice card, um, and it gives a few archetypes a nice a nice shot in the arm. Um, you know, I, I don't think we can say authoritatively if Mardu Vehicles is hanging around post rotation, but I if it does, this card's probably a big part of it. I had, I have to guess, and then you know also we have to know what tribal synergies we're looking at. If there's a good pirate aggro deck, this could certainly be the key piece of that. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye on this card. This is, this is one I don't really know why it's being overlooked to the degree it is right now. This is a very powerful card. Uh, good point, Parth, in, in the chat, that Inspector does rotate after, after rotation. Um, so let's uh, finally move on from Ixalan. Uh, just want to give a shout-out to... One of our first strike producers, someone in our first strike nation, Kyle Smirchik, actually top aided the Calgary Open, which is a big deal. Like I've talked about since the first episode of the show, uh, the face to face games open is getting bigger and bigger across the country. But even though we're based in Montreal, and and I obviously have my heart in Montreal. Gotta admit, the Magic community in Alberta is absolutely insane. Every time we go to Alberta, we expect a huge showing and we set the cap at 192 and online pre-reg, like it capped out 
and Vincente, who, who works, who's the event manager uh, for, for all these opens, managed to, to find some open slots so that the final attendance was 205. Uh, so the Calgary Open, that's like our biggest open in Alberta ever. And Kyle Smirchik top eight with that, with his own, uh, I think, band con- concoction. So congratulations to him. I'm um, seeing like Avazin's Pilgrim. It's like a bat humans type deck collected company. So uh, huge congrats to him. The event was taken down by Daniel Goresh, who was playing blue white control. So pretty sweet, pretty sweet stuff. And uh, we're going to Vancouver on uh, this upcoming weekend for for the next open, where, where there's already quite uh, a decent amount of registrations, way more than for our event last year. So pretty excited about the whole thing as a whole. And it's obvious by now more than ever that modern is the choice format um, that there is absolutely no doubt, especially since I played at the uh, local face-to-face games, uh, PPTQ with uh, Titan shift. And we had significantly more players for that than our standard PPTQ two weeks, two or three weeks ago prior. Um, But uh, related to, to modern and standard, Brian, were you surprised that there were no bands? I, I guess not. No, right? No, I, I don't think anything was really close to the chopping block here. The only thing that you heard some murmurings about was Death Shadow. That would have been premature. I think that card's kind of on on the downtick right now anyway. Um, yeah, modern's in a good place right now. And you're, you're exactly right that it's by far the most popular format. I went to a PPTQ a couple of weeks ago. Um, and like the last standard PPTQ I played at the store probably had like 24, 25 people. I think there were 70, it was either 60 or 70 for the modern PPTQ. Like it was absolutely packed. Um, and people love modern to a ludicrous degree. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you just let the format ride for right now. Things are in a good place. Um, and there's some interesting developments going on. You know, you mentioned Kyle. Um, one of our other listeners, Ben Feingrish, he similarly won the TJ Collectibles event this weekend, which is another big modern event. He also played the Ban Humans deck, uh, the the Nightfall deck, which is kind of coming out of nowhere as to to maybe be a top contender in the format, um, just out of left field. So, yeah, interesting stuff going on in modern. The format continues to evolve and rotate. You know, we saw Death Shadow rise to prominence, then it was Aldrazi Tron. Now it looks like it's going to be this Ban Humans deck. So, yeah. Uh, interesting stuff going on for sure. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too surprised until we see a lot of, I don't know, dominance with it in at the GP level or or whenever the modern PT possibly. But as of now, we're just seeing a lot of different changes. Uh, you know, Eldrazi Tron comes and goes. So seems like both modern and standard are, are sort of in the same place where there's a lot of decks and a lot of close matchups. Uh, Brian, you, you played an RPTQ this past weekend. I assume it didn't go as well as, as we all hope in this, in this group, but uh, what'd you play and how'd you do? Uh, I played Teamer with Scarab God. Um, I was, was probably playing the last round for like ninth or 10th place. I think I was going to miss on breakers anyway, uh, but I lost, so it didn't matter. Uh, deck was great. I just like drew poorly in a couple matchups and made a couple of mistakes that like one was just like a classic Brian G on board blunder. Uh, the other was like a kind of unintuitive spot, but I think that, I think that rug has kind of established itself as the top dog in the format. 
primarily because it has such good sideboard options. Like, there's no deck that in post-board configurations as Rug you don't feel completely fine against. You always have a plan. Um, being able to get into this kind of, like, quasi-fish formation where you're, like, you know, you have long tusk hubs backed up by Negate, that's very difficult for decks like Approach to be. Uh, Ramp has a very difficult time with it as well. Um, so you always have a good game plan. And, and Scarab God is an interesting card. I keep finding it... it it's so hard to say if it's actually better than the alternatives because it wins me so many games that I otherwise would have absolutely no shot in. Like games that you would just absolutely be closed out of if you didn't have Scarab God in your deck, you can pull out um, with its tremendous source of card advantage and, and you know, just board dominance. And then sometimes I'm just like, well, if this Scarab got in my hand was a Glorybringer and I just was able to attack for four on this turn, I would have won this game. Um, so you, you can see both sides of the equation, and it's really hard to quantify how many games you give up by, you know, having Swamp in your deck. So I, I'm, I'm having a hard time placing Scarab God yeah, everyone thinks it's great in the mirror. I see that in the chat right now. It is. It absolutely will take over the mirror if you untap with Scarab God. But like I said, there's a million other times where I could say, well, if I had just attacked with the Glorybringer on this turn as opposed to playing the Scarab God, I would have actually been further ahead. And, and there's a lot of board positions that Glorybringer can bring you back from that Scarab God can't. It's not as clear cut as this is just the way to configure yourself if you want to be advantaged in the mirror. The, the matchups where I can say authoritatively you're advantaged against is. Uh, God Pharaoh's Gift. You get a tremendous amount of value by having Scarab God in your deck against God Pharaoh's Gift, but that deck seems to be trending down anyway, and I think if I had to put an estimation on it, I, I do think that you're better off in the mirror with Scarab God than you know, Max Glorybringers or like an extra Sky Sovereign, but it's not as big as people think it is. It feels bigger than it is because the games you win with it are so lopsided and you just like roll out of control um, but, but the actual percentage edge is probably smaller than people think. And despite the fact that I'm like completely crushing with the Scarab God rug decks, like I'm, I'm probably like, I would say something like 16 and four across all the leagues and, and the RPTQ that I've played. Um, I, I'm actually not convinced that it's authoritatively the right way to go. I still don't know at this point, even having played a bunch of games. So. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess what I would say is that you can kind of defer to your play style. Like, if you're more interested in setting up board stalls and trying to get to a place where you can just untap with Scarab God, you know, more of a control-ish nature, I could see you lean towards Scarab God, whereas if you're the type to just kind of generate some tempo and, you know, get a few pokes here and there to where you're able to just kind of swing board presence in your favor, then maybe Glorybringer is the way you want to go. Um... For me personally, I think I'm going to keep playing Scarab God uh, at DC. My question is whether I'm playing something like Woodland Wanderer, um, kind of figuring out my last few sideboard slots. I've been playing two Dispossess. I don't think that's necessary anymore. I'll probably play a Dispossess, um, just because, like I said, you get a lot of points against Jeskai Gifts anyway, so you don't really need double um, Dispossess. I may even play none. And then I'm looking at cards like Invasive Surgery that I kind of want to add at this point. So we'll see exactly um, where I go. But I, I think I'm just making some small sideboarding tweaks and possibly including Woodland Wanderer. But as of now, I've had some issues with that card. So it's going to have to really turn around my opinion in the next few days. I had to look up Invasive Surgery. <laughs> That's a good uh, one. Have you, 
Have you been playing Ronus in your list, Brian? What, what do you think about it? What do you think about it in the mirror? I don't play Ronus. It's bonkers in the mirror. It's great in the mirror. I wouldn't play more than one copy. I think it's it's got some problems in a bunch of other places. Um, but it's it's definitely a, a super strong card for the mirror. Um, but I don't play it. So, that, I mean, you take of that what you will. I, there's only so many slots you have. And I, I'd rather just ask for more versatility out of my cards. Like, the deck is really good at presenting multiple game plans and creating a lot of different decision points for you. Ronus kind of only does one thing. He does it very well, but he needs to be going forward for him to be really making an impact. Um, so I, I'm kind of kind of off Ronus for the time being, but I wouldn't fault someone for playing it. That's the thing is all these decisions, like usually I'm someone who makes some very strong conclusions and I feel like authoritatively this is the correct way to do this. I don't say that about any of this stuff. I don't know if you should be playing Scarab God. I don't know if you should have Ronus in your deck. And I don't think you're like wrong for doing it one way or the other i think both approaches have merits and it's kind of going to depend on the matchups you get throughout the day whether you wanted one side over the other uh and a lot of times it's going to depend on when you draw those cards you know (laughs) to eight open mana on a well-stalled board i would rather draw scarab god over glory bringer you know nine times out of ten um but yeah it's really hard to make authoritative assessments of these cards right now um, just stay flexible, make sure you know your plans, and I, I think Rogue's a great deck for this weekend. Man, I just... Because you've experimented a lot, and I've seen you and Rob experiment with um, blue, blue, black, green... Oh, what's it? <laughs> it escapes my brain now. What's blue, black, green again? Sultai. Sultai. Um, to, to, like, find the best Scarab God deck... And I could just see you dominating with like if you if you worked on blue black more and, and like just some sort of any any deck with Scarab God as you having success with Ryan. Yeah, Scarab God's just a bonkers card, like completely bonkers. Um, kind of it only took me a few times of playing with Scarab God to start jamming Scarab Gods into all of my decks. Um, it's probably the best card in standard right now. It just lines up very well. There's not a lot of great answers for it, and that's one of the things is like I I keep thinking like. Oh, I mean, obviously, this is a known quantity at this point. Like, people know putting Scarab God into your rug deck is, is worth something. So I'm thinking, like, how do I answer that? And the actual thing is, I, I don't have an answer to it because there isn't one. Scarab God is that good that if you on top of it, you probably win. You can play things like Hour. You could do something stupid like Puncturing Blow. But all these cards are, are super crappy, super narrow, and, like, just not really how you want to attack. Uh, the matchup like you're, you're not looking to board in a four mana removal spell oh look at that another bad four mana removal spell uh in the rug mirror that's really not going to get you anywhere so i yeah I, I don't have the answers right now but i also don't think i'm wrong because i'm winning so much with this deck that like i'm not that far off and it's just like a very good shell uh rewards competent play so Play rug. That's that's where I'm at right now. You know, configure it how you want. Make sure you have a reason behind what you're doing. Play in such a manner that reflects your reasoning, and you'll do fine. Like that. I like that. Um, and I think that just uh, wraps our show. Uh, Vince, anything to add of, from this today's news? Anything you want to say? I mean, I did. <laughs> this is like doing a complete 180 from the conversation we were just having, but. Brian brought up a card that he thinks is a sleeper card from Ixalan, and I have one of my own that I think 
might actually be good. And I'm probably going to get berated for saying that I think it's good, but um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. It's called Ripjaw Raptor. It's two green green for a 4-5 with the new mechanic Enrage. Whenever Ripjaw Raptor is dealt damage, draw a card. Um, I think this card could be really good in if there's a way to cast it efficiently on turn three in some decks. Uh, if that's the case, I think this card could be very, very powerful. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, because I don't know the full set, and I don't know what standards going to look like, but also that card's insane with Walking Ballista, if you really want to have fun. So could fit nicely into that green-black deck as a way to just, like, surprise draw seven cards. So something to think about. Or I guess it would only be five cards, but that's still pretty good. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to add. There are, there are other good cards in the set that might be under the radar. That is pretty sweet. I just can't help but laugh the last time you talked about something under the radar with your sweet draft strategy. Yes! The o- I don't even remember what it was called. It was so bad. The O3 for two that allowed you to bounce things? Ooh, that card was great. I hope, I hope honestly, when, this, the, when the full set is spoiled, my goal is to find the next Dagger Force special, which is a card that I will grossly overrate, and it'll actually be worse than it was before I overrated it. I hope I can find it. I, I just hope it's uh, very, I don't know, I just hope it's treasure-centric for whatever reason. Aegis Automaton. <laughs> That's what it was called. That's what we're looking for, the next Aegis Automaton. Keep, keep, keep it up in the First Strike Nation. I'll, uh, I'll make sure to post it for you, for you guys if you're interested, the next, the next best thing. All right. Gonna th- shout out to our first strike producers, Matthew Kelly, Jonathan Good, Kyle Smirchig, Derek Pite, Adrian Murchison, Isaiah Carrero. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Everyone in First Strike Nation, everyone who has joined us recently, um, lots of people who um, sadly in last week, uh, was either last week or the weekend, two weekends ago, I didn't mention this on the show because I, I was sick last week, but uh, we had two people in the nation who lost their RPTQ, at least two people who lost their RPTQ top eight, one in Toronto and another, um, I think his name was Thomas. So my heart goes out to them, but you know, they were really close. They were really close. So uh, that's it for us. Our official spoilers, we're getting two cards. I think they're, uh, I have to check, but they're, they're, they're probably uncommon common because all the good stuff has been, uh, spoiled by that uh, thief so join us in two weeks for our exclusive spoilers it was supposed to be the 3-3 so i think maybe odds are we're getting something that's more playable uh that these guys will find more playable both in constructed and in limited so uh we will see you guys in two weeks and for brian vince and myself thank you for checking out the show give the video a thumbs up and uh like our facebook page and we'll see you next time ciao guys Thank you.